there are moments when you are wrong about something. And it would be wise for you to admit it, and sometimes admit it openly. It's times like this that you certainly wish you were right. You know, you wish you didn't mess up. But everything points to you making that mistake. And hopefully it's not a big one. Of course, you have a choice in this matter. You can readily acknowledge your mistake to someone or say nothing. Hide behind it and even go one step further and point the finger at someone else or something else. In other words, you can become an expert at playing the blame game. Let's take it one step further. Have you ever been around someone who never admits when they've done something wrong? Amen. I think all of us have been around somebody like that. Never will admit they've done something wrong. If you have been around such a person, perhaps you remember the frustration that comes in having a relationship with such a person. Especially if other people around you occasionally mess up. It can be a very difficult thing to meet a person's expectations if perfection is the only acceptable result. A person who readily points out that he or she is mistake-free will invariably do more harm in relationships than in good. And it's because human beings who make mistakes, like we all do, can never meet the standards of a perfect person. Frankly, it's rare when a person is actually seen taking responsibility for his or her actions, actually owning up to what's been done. In some ways, that's refreshing today. It's refreshing because we don't see it very often. It's like you wonder if Haley's Comet must have gone overhead again. It only happens every 76 years. Shouldn't be every 76 years before we see someone take responsibility for what they do. Amen. Amen. In order to take responsibility, you have to check your pride at the door and humble yourself. Humble yourself. This message is about the act of humility. Humility. Humility in action. Now check this. Humility in action is the essence of godliness. The essence of godliness and the absence of pridefulness. You got that? Humility is the essence of godliness and the absence of pridefulness. 
Now, using the examples I had just provided earlier, it takes little effort to exercise pride, for example, when claiming perfection or blaming others for your mistakes because both of these prideful actions are rooted in the flesh. If you're blaming somebody else for something you've done, that's flesh. If you don't think you can make a mistake, that's the flesh. Humility is a direct opposite to the desires of the flesh. Amen? Now, I'm telling you stuff that you already know. But I'm also telling you this because humility is something we have to work at. Because we are flesh. Because we have flesh that reigns. And we have to control it. Humility is a character trait. Notice the phrase character trait. It's a character trait that must be learned and developed over time. Learned and developed over time. You've got to learn it and develop it because you're not in your own nature capable of humility. In your own nature, you aren't capable of it. It would not come naturally to you because you're flesh. As a child, you were only capable of communicating your basic needs and desires with dependence on your parents to care for you. When you were hungry, you started crying. When you soiled your diaper, well, I don't know what you did, but you did something. Something got communicated to let you know it was time to change the diaper. Maybe it was a look on your face. But something was communicated. But those were your basic needs being met. As you grew up, you had to learn about right and wrong. You had to learn the words please and thank you. Amen? You had to learn how to say please and thank you. And how to be courteous to others. You had to learn how to be courteous to others. In your flesh, you would just be nasty as you wanted to be. Amen? You know I'm telling the truth. You had to learn please and thank you. You had to learn courtesy. You had to learn good behavior. Assuming that you have learned all these things, and I'm just going to make the assumption that you've learned please and thank you, that you've learned how to be courteous to people, that you know what that means. Humility is something that was embedded in all of that. Being humble in the process. We're continuing to learn it as we get older, and we are still learning to master it. Still learning to master it. There is grace in humility. Amen? There is grace in humility, both for you when you exercise it, and for the recipient of the person on the other end. There's grace. As we learn to master acts of humility, we are to be encouraged to grow in this area because it is a godly attribute. Turn, please, to James chapter 4. 
James chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 6. Now, the key verse here is obviously verse 6. There's a lot that's being said before that in verses 1 through 5 and a little bit after that. But the key verse to focus on, pardon me, is verse 6, where he says, but he gives greater grace, meaning God gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, and this is a lesson for all of us, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's why we can say the phrase, there is grace in humility. The grace is received by God. You understand that grace. You extend that grace to others. The art of mastering humility will test six key areas of your life in your quest for godliness and living a Christ-like existence. Now, notice the assumptions being made that you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You understand what it means to live a Christ-like existence. And this message, like the book of James, is a message to believers. Believers should understand godliness because non-believers won't understand that. Non-believers will do whatever they think they should do, whatever they think is right in their own eyes. But we're the ones who profess to know Jesus Christ. We're the ones that should set the example for the world. So we should live a Christ-like existence and understand what humility is in that whole role. Now, this list of six things I'm mentioning is far from inclusive of everything, but these will say a lot about who you are and your growth in Christ. And you're welcome to jot these down. Number one, your honesty. Your honesty. How honest are you? How trustworthy are you? Are you a person that can be trusted? Can people come to you and trust you with information, for example? Can people come and share with you something very personal and then not have to worry about checking the internet to see if somebody's up there and says something about it? See, that's the new way of gossip today, right? The new way of gossip today is that somebody tells you something and it goes on the internet. So not only are you reaching tens of people, but hundreds of people with your business. Well, can you be trusted? Did you hear what I said about so-and-so? Well, if you're living a Christ-like existence, this should not be part of your way of thinking. Amen? Only got two amens for that? Y'all know how to use the internet if you want to. Most folks say they don't know how to use I don't know how to email. Yeah, whatever. You do know how to email. Email is just as bad. Number two, your kindness. Your kindness, your generosity, your compassion. And here's a word we'll talk about a little bit later on, too. Your forgiveness. Those are all part of number two. Your kindness. How kind are you? 
Remember, we're talking about humility here. Number three, your patience. Your patience is tested often, isn't it? Your patience is tested in traffic. My patience is tested in traffic every day, especially Monday through Friday, especially on Interstate 480. It's a mess. And you can tie in number four to that, your perseverance. Your perseverance. How you put up with stuff. How you deal with it. So we got honesty, kindness, patience, perseverance being number four. Number five being your respect. Now it's not just your respect for others because that's important. But even your own self-respect. Even your own self-esteem. How you see yourself is very important. And finally, number six, your self-control. Your contentment, your level of contentment. And do I dare mention your temper? Your temper. Classic Alvin and the Chipmunks. Alvin, you know, is always this volatile character, right? And he reads a note that says, you have a bad temper. Alvin says, a bad temper? I do not, and starts stomping and gyrating. Bad temper. Can't tell him anything. I ain't got no bad temper. That's what most people do sometimes if they, you tell them, you know, you got to watch your temper. What's their response going to be? Ho-ho! Step back. But a temper, a volatile temper reflects an absence of humility. Absence of humility. It doesn't mean you can't get mad. You can get mad. But there's a difference between getting mad and expressing a bad temper. Amen? Okay. Now, you may have picked up that these virtues that I've just mentioned make up a number of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Go to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll take a look at these. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to manage these different virtues because of his presence in our lives. Because as we just got through saying, you can't do any of this stuff on your own. The flesh is incapable of managing these virtues. There has to be a presence of the Holy Spirit where you are allowing the Spirit to manage these virtues. In verses 22 through 26 of Galatians chapter 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's called humbling yourself. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, we must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, 
provoking one another, envying one another. What do most folks do? So-and-so's got so much more than I do. So-and-so thinks they're better than we are. That's what this verse is talking about. The first thing that your flesh wants to do is say, so-and-so, so-and-so. With an attitude, with exclamation points. Some of you are smiling and laughing because you know you probably have witnessed something like this recently. So-and-so. Gossiping, talking about other folks, bad-mouthing other folks behind their back, stabbing them in the back. Under the bus. Throwing them under the bus and running over them a few times and backing up. Amen. Y'all know, that because people are like that. In the flesh, you will destroy other folks. You'll destroy them. In the flesh, you will just ruin them. They will be ruined. But you're not like that, are you? Uh-oh. Y'all in church now, see. We're telling it like it is. See, we understand as believers in Jesus Christ, you can't live a double life. You can't come in church and talk about how, yes, Lord, we don't want to act like that. And then get outside and be talking. Can't live a double life like that. But this message is about humility. Humility is the very key to being able to do all these things that we talk about in the fruits of the Spirit. Living a life of humility requires a believer crucifying the flesh. You must crucify this flesh. That's what this verse just said. You must crucify this flesh. And when we say crucifying the flesh, that means killing it off, putting it aside. It needs to die in order for you to live for Christ. It's an ongoing struggle. Amen? But the Holy Spirit enables every single believer with the capability to overcome any fleshly influences or desires. The Spirit gives you the ability to overcome any fleshly desire. You've got to believe that. You have to live that way. Now, by yielding to the Spirit, we're going to cover three different points. Again, not all-inclusive, because you could spend all day talking about this. Humility is so important, you could spend all day. We could have church until 7 tonight. I don't know if you would hang with me that long, but we could have church till 7 tonight, talking about humility and talking about how you could have done something maybe even differently yesterday, the day before, or even this morning, about how you could have been humble in your approach to something, somewhere. By yielding to the Spirit, you'll be at best be able to do the following. Number one, rely less 
on your own reasoning and rely more on your heart. Less on your own reasoning, less on your own way of thinking, and more on your heart. Now, the heart is key here. Let me expand on that a little bit more. Humility has a positive effect, first of all, on your thought process. It has a positive effect on it. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to be in agreement with your thought process, but it is a positive effect. You're invariably going to take the approach, when it comes to looking at life in general with a humble approach, that's going to go beyond your own reasoning, beyond your own way of thinking, beyond your own logic, beyond your own understanding. Now understand something. In the day when we had the great philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they used their own way of thinking, logic, reasoning, and came up with things that people followed and understood. But you have so much more power and ability than that because you have the Spirit working with you. That goes even beyond human reasoning and understanding. The way you think is now being transformed to your heart going into it. This thing about humility extends beyond the inherent barriers associated with human thoughts to those thoughts that can only come from the wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Go to Isaiah 55, and I'm going to show you exactly an example of that. Isaiah 55, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9. When we're yielding to the Spirit, we are tapped into a source that clearly goes beyond our way of reasoning, our way of thinking, our way of understanding. Now, there's nothing wrong with being smart. There's nothing wrong with getting good advice. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But now let's inject something into it that goes a little bit further, where we're talking about God's way. Of seeing things. It says in verse 8 in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Well, that means there's a difference. Amen? My thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways are not my ways. But you wouldn't know anything about that as a non-believer. But you understand this because you're a believer. This is the Lord's declaration. It says in verse 9, For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And God will give you that insight, that wisdom, that goes beyond a human explanation, a human way of reasoning. You wind up doing stuff that you never would have thought of on your own because you're trusting God in it. Amen. Amen. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. You're trusting in something that you would never think of on your own. That's faith. Go to another verse. 1 Samuel 16. I love this verse. 1 Samuel 16, 7. For those of us who are really caught up on appearances, 
are caught up on looking a certain way or showing yourself as a certain way. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good. Don't get me wrong. You should want to try and present yourself in the best possible way in order to make a presentation as positive as a believer before other people. You shouldn't automatically look like you got dragged off the corner if you have the ability to fix yourself up. Amen? You should try to look good. But there's also even humility in that. There's also something that has to be said for that too. But look at what it says here in this verse, to not digress too much from this. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Now, this was a good-looking man when they were looking for a king. Good-looking man. Ruddy appearance, tall, handsome. But God says, don't look at his appearance. I've rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees. Amen? For man sees what is visible. Because that's all we can see. But the Lord sees from the heart. Now this goes back to when we're asked to pray about situations or circumstances. Something may be laid out right before you to make, make perfect sense to do this thing. But you still are called to do what? Pray about it. Because you don't know if God has a different answer until you pray about it. Amen? Now, it may come out exactly the way you thought, but there's a one time you might be surprised. You thought it was going to go this way, but God sent you in a totally different direction. And I'll testify that that's happened many times for me. I've seen that. You think it's going to go this way, it goes that way. But that's now you're seeing things as God sees them. The heart comes into play. Second point. Humility helps you trend less towards anger. Uh Uh-oh. And more towards peace. Humility allows you to trend less towards anger and more towards peace. Peace is always good. Amen? No one really wants to be angry. No one wants to necessarily experience a lot of anger. It's going to happen. But humility helps you to see that extra measure that allows you to gravitate more towards peace than anger. In order to understand the nature of peace, you need to go beyond the obvious. In other words, the obvious thing to say about peace is, well, there's no war, no yelling or screaming, a quiet room. Those are all givens. But those are all correct. But let's now consider the influence of Christ in your efforts in humility. Jesus Christ's influence on you in your efforts of humility 
remind you, hopefully, of something that's very important. God's grace to you. God's grace to you. Start with you. And how that grace is extended to others. God's grace to you. If you really think about God's grace to you, first and foremost, you won't be angry. Because if you really think about it and put some thought into this, God has every right to be angry with you. Amen? Every right to be angry with you. But he doesn't do that to you. He extends you grace. And if you're really thinking about that, now you're going to transcend that way of thinking to others that you communicate with. When you recognize God's grace in your life, you are going to readily extend that grace to other people. You will give that grace to other people. See, in our moments of the flesh, we don't think about any of that stuff. We get ticked off at people. What did I tell you about that? Didn't I tell you not to do that? Then you forget about all about God's grace. And you turn into Satan. Right in front of other people. Amen? Y'all know I'm telling the truth, too. You are, telling, you are turned into Satan before other people. Scare folks to death. If you're thinking about that grace, you won't do that. And that is even during those times when you have every right to be angry. No one wants to be put upon. No one wants to be judged incorrectly. No one wants to be persecuted. No one wants anything like that to happen to them. You have every right to be angry. But your response is Christ-like because of that grace. Your response is Christ-like. What did Jesus do when he went to the cross? It's Christ-like. Turn to Ezra. Ezra is a book that we don't go to very often. But there's a verse here that we need to to look at because the people involved here in this verse are being oppressed and they're being persecuted. But I want you to make a note of their response to this. Ezra chapter 9. Ezra 9. I'll give you some time to find it. We don't go to Ezra every day. Ezra chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 9. And while we're turning to that, I want you to think about those moments in your life where something happened to you that you didn't like. Something happened to you that you experienced where you had a right to be angry about it. And how you handled that, how you responded to that, 
It could have been stuff happening in our own family. Our own families will do stuff to us. It doesn't have to be people in the outside world. Goodness knows some of us have families that, you know, Hall of Fame stuff when it comes to turmoil. The Turmoil Hall of Fame. Y'all heard of the Hallmark Hall of Fame. Well, some of y'all can start your own show with the Turmoil Hall of Fame when it comes to family stuff. How did you respond to that? So I'm going to assume everybody's at Ezra chapter 9. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our fathers until the present. Now look at what the writer is saying. Because of our iniquities... We have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. That's all verse 7. So we're acknowledging we had iniquity. We're acknowledging we've been in sin. We're acknowledging stuff's happening to us because of that. Verse 8. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from Yahweh our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in this holy place. Now remember, still feeling oppressed, even in our slavery, God has given us new life and light to our eyes. This verse should give you pause about anybody who's been in captivity. Even here in America, there can be grace. There can be things seen that are positive through the experiences because of God's presence. Don't miss that. Verse 9, though we are slaves... Our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us new life so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Do you see, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of oppression, even with the acknowledgement that you have been in sin, And you're being punished for it. If you're looking to God, he'll give you grace. He'll give you peace. All he wants you to do is look at him and you'll see it. Turn towards him and look at him. When people look at you, That's what they should see, your grace. Being different from the world. Being different from what people see. This is especially true in areas where forgiveness is necessary. True forgiveness is not on our own strength and ability. Amen? True forgiveness is not on our own strength and ability. It comes only from God himself through the Spirit. As God has forgiven our sins, 
through his grace and granted us an eternity of fellowship with him, we are to extend the same grace to others and put aside our anger. So when it comes down to a person whose example has been in slavery and the slave approaches the master, what's the slave supposed to do? Forgive. Forgive. Put aside the anger. It's tough, isn't it? That's why we said humility is always a work in process, in progress. It's always a work in process. And we're talking about grace. You as a believer should be the cold, refreshing water in this world. For folks who are thirsty for the truth, you should be that cold cup of water when people see you. And teach these very things to others. Show them that if you're living for Christ, you'll have these things. Go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 16 through 22. Some of your Bibles may actually say in that section, love in action. I wanted to point that out to you because this is love in action. You as a believer, as a humble believer, exercise love in action. Verse 16 of 1 John, chapter 3. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. That's the best example of love you can ever know. Amen? He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? That's a really great point. You see somebody needs something. They may not even be asking you for any help. But you see they need something. But you just turn your head and don't do anything about it. What's up with that? Nothing. You're right, nothing, because nothing's happening. Something should be going on. Don't always wait for somebody to ask for help before you offer it. If they reject it, that's another thing. But don't hesitate to offer it. Now, understand something too. Pride will keep somebody from taking help that they really need. But that's not your responsibility. You still extend the help if you need to. Because that's the right thing to do. Exercise that love. Show that love and compassion. You will win that brother or sister over, over time, if you keep doing that. Amen? You'll win them over. Verse 18. 
Little children, we must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. In other words, don't just talk the game that I'm here to help you. Live it and do it. Verse 19, this is how we will know we belong to the truth and will convince our conscience in his presence. Even if our conscience condemns us, that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. Verse 21, dear friends, if our conscience doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God and can receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now that goes back to the previous verse. Even if we're focusing on the Lord, he's going to bless us. While we're trying to figure out what we're doing with our own lives, just having a relationship with him is going to be a blessing for us and for others. We're always warring with the flesh. That's ongoing. But if we call on the Lord while we're trying to figure out our act and getting our act together, he's going to bless us. He's going to bless you. Don't miss the fact that he's been blessing you even before you became a believer. Amen? Before you even acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior, what did he have to do? Keep you. Protect you. Let's get back to forgiveness. Go to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. This verse is a verse that some people try not to understand. I'm just going to put it out there. They try not to understand this verse. Because when somebody does you wrong, you're keeping count of how many times they've wronged you. You may have a mental list of things that they've done to you. And it may be ugly. But it says in Luke chapter 17 something that people don't necessarily want to hear or understand. It says in verses 3 and 4, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now it doesn't say that you can't rebuke him. But we'll rebuke somebody, but we won't do anything else. You can't leave stuff out. It's okay to rebuke him if he does something to you, but what else are you supposed to do? And if he repents, forgive him. It's not up to you to determine how he should repent to you. If, it says, if he repents. You may not like the way he apologized to you. That ain't good enough. I need you to really grovel. No, that's not what the verse says. The verse says if he repents, forgive him. Amen. Don't put your human reasoning into it. First of all, nobody should be groveling to you to apologize to you. Amen. That person should not have to lower their dignity. Before you, like you're some sort of king or queen. When you might be the king of queen as sin yourself. 
or the chief. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, you keep in count and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. See, a lot of folks don't want to hear that verse. They don't want to hear about that. Somebody repents to you seven times, you're supposed to forgive them seven times, you've got to be kidding me. You must be joking. Nope. And not only does it say you have to forgive, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. Because it goes back to what? God's grace for you. Have you kept count about how many times you've sinned and transgressed against God? And how many times has God forgiven you? Amen? You can't just throw this verse out. You can't rip this page out of the Bible. You can try. It's not going to change anything. I'll just get you another Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Here's why you're supposed to forgive him every time. Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Now, I reasoned in my head as I was preparing this sermon that this would be the part of the sermon where I would lose two-thirds of the audience. Because of the act of forgiveness. Well, what you're going to learn is that this is what distinguishes you as a believer, even from other believers, when it comes to making a testimony before Christ. Because forgiveness is the reason why a lot of people are stuck and not growing. A lack of forgiveness is the point. A lack of forgiveness is what gets people stuck and keeps them from truly growing and progressing as believers. If you have a lack of forgiveness, you're stuck. You can't, I promise you, you won't make a testimony before others of Christ if you're stuck in a lack of forgiveness. And I mean a family member, somebody who did something to you a long time ago, something that was very painful, something that was very hurtful. If you can't get past that, you're stuck. And it's one of those things like where you're stuck in the mud. You can't get out on your own. Here's why Matthew 6 is very important, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. Verse 15, but if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. That's why you're stuck. That's why you're stuck. Somebody did you wrong, but I guarantee you, you've done somebody else something too. You're stuck because God's not going to forgive you. You have to humble yourself to know where you've messed up 
and give that to the Lord and repent of that sin, he will forgive you. And hopefully from that you will see why you need to forgive the other person. Don't let your harshness that comes from an unforgiving spirit ruin your testimony before Jesus Christ and others because it will ruin it. It will do it. I'm hoping you're thinking about people that you've had grudges with. People have done things to you. People who have hurt you. I hope you're thinking about those people right now. This is an area that's a stumbling block to many believers because they are failing to grasp that immeasurable grace that God has bestowed upon them in forgiveness for their own sin. As you grow and learn more about God and this grace, you're going to be less resentful, less angry, and be more ready and willing to extend grace to others and forgiveness to others. Think about that grace. Think about his love. Remember that song? Think about his love. Think about his goodness. Think about the grace that's brought us through. There's a reason why we sing those songs, you know. It's an area that all of us needs to work on. It starts with humbling yourself before God and before others. Humble yourself before God. And before others. Now, this also applies to how well you esteem yourself before God. Now, Satan will trick believers. Let's start with that. Satan's got a bag of tricks. And he whips them out. Because he knows all about you. And he knows what can mess you up. Right, kids? We're all children of God, you know. It's not just the youngsters. It's all of us. He has a bag of tricks. Satan tricks believers into thinking that they are forever inadequate before God. Amen? Satan will do that to you because you're a sinner. One guy I met one time, I think it was here in this church, some guy who was visiting saying, my name is so-and-so and I'm a sinner. That's all he said. Well, we got that. You're a sinner. But sometimes you have to go beyond that a little bit when you're communicating. I know he was trying to humble himself. I got that. But I think we need to be very careful about that too. Because you are great in God's eyes if you truly look and seek him. God assures us that we are made righteous before him when we confess our sin and trust that he's true to his word. In other words, just don't hang on the part that you're a sinner. You're better than that. You are made righteous by God because you've taken that sin and given it to him. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John 1, 9. It's not enough to say you're a sinner. We got that. I love that approach. That's fine. But you've got to go beyond that when you're communicating with other people. Amen? 
We all sin. We all fall short of God's, God's glory. We understand that. But that doesn't mean we wallow in the fact that we're sinners. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sin, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are cleansed and made righteous because we've given those sins to him. Well, that means living in a way that is righteous. It's a good thing because God's given us that ability to do so. One more verse, Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. You are free in Christ. So live like it. You have a freedom in Christ. Last point to cover, and we'll work towards a close here. Humility reminds you that it's not about you, but it's more about Jesus. Not about you, but more about Jesus. Rick Warren's book, The um, Purpose Driven Life, that's the very first thing he says in the book. It's not about you. It's more about Jesus. And your humility should reflect that. Your relationship with Jesus Christ should be far more important than those things that would keep you from living a life of humility. More important than your ego. More important than your reputation. More important than those adversarial relationships that you're in. Amen? I can go on. More important than your finances. More important than anything that has an adverse effect on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's just put it out there. It's more important than all that stuff. A humble person is a godly person who is secure and content in himself. A godly person who is secure and content in himself, in his relationships, and acknowledges a dependence on Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 8. Just a couple more of these verses and we're going to be closing out. 1 Corinthians 8. Verses 5 and 6. It is a wonderful thing to see a believer who is confident in Christ. Confident in God's word. Doesn't half-step. Projects God's word to everybody they come in contact with through their actions, through their words, through their appearance. And understanding that we're dependent upon Christ because the world's going to have all different kinds of stuff getting in the way of that. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods, in quotes, and many lords, and there are many gods out there, many lords, in the form of appliances and cars and trips and all those things that the world enjoys. Amen? Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. This is how our life should be portrayed. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. That should be how you live. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Philippians 4. Let's go to that one. Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. Finances is a very key issue. You could spend spend until 11 o'clock tonight talking about finances. We could stay here right now for another 12 hours and talk about finances. Amen? Because some of us have a little, and some of us have very little when it comes to finances. But look at what this verse says. This is about contentment, very important, because it's not about you, it's about Jesus. It says, I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot, verse 12. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. What's that secret? If you told somebody, here's the secret of being content, you'd have people lined up to see you. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Which basically means you're acknowledging you can't do nothing without Jesus Christ. You can't do anything. You can't do nothing without Jesus Christ. That's what you're saying. And it's true, you can't. First Peter five, first Peter chapter five, verse six. First Peter five, six. Some of us are waiting for deliverance in some way, shape, or form, from a difficult time or a a difficult season. Let's use that word, season. We go through seasons of life that are good, and we go through seasons of life that, frankly, stink. They're terrible. They're not enjoyable. You don't want to go through them. You don't want to go through those difficult times. That's all right. That's to be expected. It says in 1 Peter 5, though, look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, because God is in control of everything. Amen? God's in control of even what you're going through right then and there. That he may lift you up in due time. Because what you're going through is a season, which means there is an end coming to that season. It's going to end sometime. 
We don't always understand when that time is, but it will come to an end. He will lift you up. A great trick from Satan is that you'll never get out of anything. You'll never get through it. You're just going to die in your misery. God says, humble yourself before him, and he will lift you up in due time. Amen? And I believe God's word to be true. Because if you believe that, it's not about you. It's all about Jesus Christ. Because if it's about you, you won't believe any of that. Above all, humility is necessary for a person to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? You have to humble yourself to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. In Acts 2.38, it says, Repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 12, it says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Amen. Now the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, since the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. Now the key element of this is that you have to humble yourself to do those very things. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess with your mouth. You've got to humble yourself and say, I need to do this. It's a choice you make. And remember, God wants everyone he created, every human being to be saved. So you make the choice to humble yourself and make the decision for Christ. How important is that humility? How important is humbling yourself enough to know you need a Savior? Many of you have done that. You understand that. Pray for those who haven't gotten it yet. Amen? Pray for those people that you know in your family, your friends, your co-workers who have not yet humbled themselves enough to acknowledge Jesus Christ. Now you see the importance of humility. Humility is the essence of godliness, the opposite of pridefulness, the essence of godliness, opposite of pridefulness. Think of those things in your life that you need to do when it comes to humbling yourself before the Lord and before others. No one wants to admit when they've done something wrong. But you know you shouldn't be blaming somebody else. You know what you need to do. Seek the Lord in all of his righteousness. Amen? Amen. Father, we just thank you for the lessons of humility. We thank you for how, Lord, you've given us the wisdom to seek you in all things, to die to self, to live for Christ. 
Thank you for showing us how important humility is in this whole process. Thank you for showing us how we need to be forgiving of other people who have wronged us. Thank you for just showing us the many different lessons that come from that. Help us to live in such a way, Lord, where in everything that we do, we are seeking you, seeking you first. We thank you for the blessings that come from that. We thank you for giving us the blessings even when we don't have complete understanding of what we're doing. Just because we're seeking you, we're thankful that you respond. We're thankful that you give us grace in the midst of difficulty. That you give us peace in the midst of things happening in our lives that come against us. Thank you for your grace and peace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your comfort. We give you praise in all of these things, and we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace and peace is the key.